Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallak. Coming up in this edition of Eco Report, agri- agrivoltaics and climate resilience as environmental correspondent Zero Rose brings us part three of his discussion with Sam Carpenter on bills opposed and backed by the Hoosier Environmental Council in the 2024 legislative session. The full four-part interview will be available online after the show as an eco-report extra to be found at wfhb.org. And now for your environmental reports. The story appeared in the Daily Journal of Franklin, Indiana. A controversial bill that would strip wetland protections in Indiana is the first to head to the governor's desk after being fast-tracked by the Indiana General Assembly. House Bill 1383, authored by Representative Alan Morrison, Republican of Versailles, clarifies various wetland definitions and eliminates certain wetland rulemaking requirements. The bill would shift some Class Three wetlands down to Class Two, a class that already has few protections because of another state law passed in 2021. The state, <clears throat> the Senate approved the bill, 32-17, on Tuesday, less than a month after its first reading in the House. Some residents, environmentalists, and state senators have expressed concerns that it was fast-tracked despite heavy opposition. Environmental activists and some state legislators also questioned whether the bill would actually protect wetlands or dwindle them further. In 2021, Indiana passed another controversial bill that left nearly 80% of the state's wetlands unprotected, with only 25% of wetlands being mitigated since then, according to the Hoosier Environmental Council, or HEC. A one-acre wetland can typically store over 100 million gallons of water, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. This means nearly 400 million gallons of water storage has been removed without mitigation since 2021, according to data from the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, or IDEM. Indiana has also lost 85% of wetlands in the last 200 years, according to the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. Last year, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled unanimously against the EPA, leaving the fate of wetlands in the state's hands, Senator Rick Niemeyer, Republican of Lowell, said during the Senate vote on the bill Tuesday. Indiana has already seen accelerated wetlands loss, said Indra Frank, Environmental Health and Water Policy Director for the HEC. The continued stripping of wetland protections is very discouraging, she said. Senators Greg Taylor, Democrat of Indianapolis, and Shelley Yoder, Democrat of Bloomington, questioned how involved environmental consultants and groups were in the legislation. During the committee hearing on the bill, 25 people, including organizations involved in drafting the bill, 
testified in opposition to the bill. Only three testified in support. Builders, environmental activists, and consultants, including the HEC, said item staff helped draft the legislation last July, Niemeyer said. Representatives from the Indiana Builders Association told the Indiana Capitol Chronicle the bill was a compromise to prevent permitting delays. Rather, profit over people. Even though the bill passed, please contact your governor today to voice opposition to this legislation. Last week, we aired a story about olive trees. Following is more information. In a counterpunch article by Joshua Frank, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it is noted that olive trees in Palestine, in addition to being a means or economic sustenance, are, lo- are a long-standing cultural practice. The harvesting of olives on wild trees extends back thousands of years. The raising of such groves has had disastrous results, including soil erosion and climate change. Since 1967, more than 800,000 Palestinian olive trees have been illegally uprooted by the Israeli Authority, according to a 2021 Al Jazeera report. Besides providing a harvestable commodity for numerous bird species, including jays, finches, and crows. They rely on biodiversity provided by Palestine's wild trees. Multiple species of these trees are often found in native olive groves. Olive groves in Palestine, in addition to being cultural landscapes, are important globally as an agricultural system based on their biodiversity, cultural, and economic values. Quote, an ancient native olive tree should be considered a testament to the very existence of Palestinians and their struggle for freedom. With its thick spiraling trunk, the olive tree stands as a cautionary tale to Israel, not because of the fruit it bears, but because of the stories its roots hold of a scarred landscape and a battered people that have been callously and relentlessly besieged for more than 75 years. End quote. There have been... Major developments on, in climate change. One is that the average temperature of the globe exceeded 1.5 degrees Celsius for 2023. This comes as no surprise. The second development is that oceans are warming at a faster pace than predictions. Thus, the glaciers are melting faster. Of particular concern are the glaciers on Greenland and Antarctica simply because they contain the most water. It may be that Previous projections of ocean rise are vastly underestimated. Most projections over the last three decades have pegged ocean rise between one and three feet by the year 2100. The new projections say the increase could be as much as 16 feet, and much of that could come from large chunks. The biggest chunk could come from the release of the Thwaites Glacier and from the western ice sheet in Antarctica. Thwaites Glacier is closely monitored for its potential to raise sea levels since the 1980s. Thwaites and Pine Island Glacier have been described as part of the weak underbelly of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, in part because they seem vulnerable to irreversible retreat and collapse even under the relatively little warming, yet because if they go, the entire ice sheet is likely to eventually follow. This hypothesis is based on both theoretical studies of the stability of marine ice sheets and their observations of large changes on these two glaciers. In recent years, the flow of both of these glaciers has accelerated, their surface levels have lowered, and their grounding lines have retreated. They are believed very likely to eventually collapse even without further warming.
The outside danger Thwaites poses has led to some reporters nicknaming it the Doomsday Glacier, although the nickname is controversial among scientists. The third development is that the freshwater melting on the Greenland on Greenland may cause the global circulation of seawater to stop. This hypothesis was first proposed 20 years ago. If that happens, the danger is that heat from the equatorial regions may not be transported to polar regions. Thus, the Gulf Stream, for example, may not transport heat to northern waters. Would Europe experience a new ice age? One thing is for sure, it would disrupt weather patterns worldwide. NBC reports that as electric vehicle demands slows, workers caught in the middle face an uncertain future. Thousands of workers face layoffs or transfers as automakers scale back on their lofty EV ambitions. This year was shaping up to be a good one for the workers at the GM Orion assembly plant in a working class suburb of Detroit. After winning a pay raise following the last year's United Auto Workers Strike, they were slated to start production later this year on a marquee product for GM, the electric Chevy Silverado pickup truck. But like thousands of other workers on the front lines of the electric vehicle transition, they have hit some bumps in the road. GM told the nearly 1,000 workers at the Orion plant in December that they were being laid off until late 2025 to make engineering improvements and amid cooling demand for electric vehicles. Their last paycheck was their holiday pay the week of Christmas, and many are still waiting to find out if they will be offered a job at another plant. Electric vehicles account for about 4.5% of new vehicle sales in Indiana, far below the national average. And now, part three on the 2024 legislative sessions at the state capitol with Zero Rose and the HEC's Sam Carpenter. The full four-part interview will be available online after the show as an Echo Report Extra to be found at WFHB.org. I think you mentioned once uh, Cinebill 177, which is uh, agrivoltaics. Um, this is a bill that Senator Yoder has put forward. Um, it seemed to get some bipartisan support, but it uh, ultimately it sounds like it's not going to move forward, uh, unfortunately. Um, agrivoltaics is the combination of uh, solar and agriculture in the same space. So that can come in different forms. Um, it can come with uh, sheep grazing in amongst the panels um, and providing that graze, grazing pasture. And there's uh, many examples of this working. Um, it can come in the form of shade crops um, being grown within the, um, in amongst the solar panels. Um, it can come in the form of uh, beehives uh, with a pollinator-friendly uh, planting in amongst the panels and then uh, beehives uh, in, as well. There's a lot of different forms of agrivoltaics. Um, Purdue has done a lot to study this issue and, and look for ways to uh, co-use land with uh, solar generation and, excuse me, agriculture. And um, so that bill, um, while it has seen some bipartisan support, unfortunately, I think it is not going to move. But I think it, um, it'll come back next year and hopefully be a little stronger. Now, this is really important. And, and this, this is another reason that community solar is important as well. 
Um, Indiana, along with the rest of the nation, is experiencing a transition to clean renewable energy. There's an energy transition that is going on in our country, uh, in the world, um, and in Indiana. So that means more solar, more wind, um, and coal, fossil fuel coal is being phased out of uh, from our energy generation. Now, to do that, we need to build a lot of solar. We need to have a lot of wind, um, and we need to have battery storage um, and other, um, you know, steady, uh, constant sources of electricity generation as well. Um, so we have these, Indiana has a pipeline of large renewable projects, um, hundreds of megawatts, uh, or even, I, you know, last time I looked, it was around five gigawatts. Um, and that does mean acres, many acres of uh, farm ground being transferred to solar or wind. Um, and there's a big pushback in rural communities on siting these projects. Um, so there's um, different reasons for that. One is it's it's different. Um, it's a change in the landscape. And, um, it, you know, change is hard. And but there's a there's other reasons, too. One is a misinformation about what's going to happen um, to that land or to the uh, power um, in that area. Um, but agrivoltaics is a way to think, okay, we can still use the land for agriculture while the um, land is being used for solar at the same time. So it's an important issue to study. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, Indiana's farm farm ground is already used for energy generation. About 20% of our crop ground is used for corn to grow corn for ethanol. Um, ethanol <laughs> doesn't have many environmental uh, benefits. In, in fact, it's a uh, net drain on our uh, environmental sustainability goals. So we could convert you know, land that's used for energy generation through corn for ethanol to uh, solar and wind, and we'd have more than enough land. Um, at the same time, also, um, we need these smaller local uh, projects like community solar. And I think if rural communities saw more uh, solar going into urban areas on, on rooftops and warehouses, on uh, old parking lots or uh, brownfields, they might feel better about uh, sharing part of that um, change in our energy transition and having solar in their uh, area as well. Um, but lots, <laughs> lots going on there with that. But uh, we do support that idea of agrivoltaics and, and hope that it gets uh, moves forward in future sessions. And yeah, that would seem to be another revenue stream for farmers that are struggling a bit. Uh, fighting against kind of a lot of consolidation by large companies. So that would seem to be another tool for them. Absolutely, it is. And, you know, farmers who are having a hard time 
finding the next generation to continue their farming. Uh, it might be the kids don't want to do that. Um, and they don't have people to, to, to pass it on to. Um, but as, as if they are part of a solar, um, if they have solar on their farm ground, then that's a great uh, way to fund their retirement um and to pass on to to future generations the the other thing is it's important to realize that at the end of the life of that solar um development that land can be returned to farming um if they have done like pollinator friendly planting um with uh, roots that can go down you know many feet into the soil um that's actually be providing nutrients um into that soil, making it better than it was before. So, uh, or if they have sheep grazing, you know, that's going to be improving that soil over years. So it's not, um, they're not losing that farm ground. They're using it for a different purpose and they can use it for whatever they want at the end of the life of that uh, solar development. The kind of overarching issue involved in all of these is this climate change and building climate resilience and so there's HB 1172, which uh, relates with to uh, climate resilience and economic growth. Uh, yeah. Now, is that uh, Representative Hamilton's uh, committee to study uh, climate? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's another one, unfortunately, that hasn't progressed. Um, but here's the thing. Fortunately. Indiana is taking action on climate change, even though uh, <laughs> climate change is a bad word among the uh, uh, many within the Indiana General Assembly. Um, <laughs> kind of hesitant to raise uh, climate change um, because there's still a lot of uh, doubters about uh, climate change or the co root causes of climate change, even though it's, you know, slapping us in the face on a regular basis. Um, the uh, Indiana is taking action and, and here's why. Um, one is our corporations um, have renewable energy goals. They have uh, emission reduction goals. Um, so, you know, a lot of these big companies within Indiana are taking their own action to reduce their emissions level. Um, but the biggest reason, the biggest reason is through uh, federal incentives, through the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill that has passed in this last few couple of years. Um, these are providing incentives in huge investment opportunities for all states, Indiana included. Um, one thing that Hoosier Environmental Council has done is one, we advocated to the to the governor's office and to IDEM to accept funding to create a climate pollution reduction plan. Um, they did that. Um, they took that step. So that's that's good. Uh, and now um, IDEM and on a regional level, it's uh, Central Indiana um, Development uh, Regional Development Authority, CERTA, um, are both creating climate action plans. 
they've been seeking uh, input from the public about what to prioritize in their plans. Now, they will submit uh, for funding, federal funding, to implement these plans. So uh, we've been encouraging Hoosiers to get involved, to, to say what they think is important. Um, and we've been involved ourselves as, and, uh, and we're actually pleased with the priorities. Um, you know, we wouldn't agree with, um, it exactly the way they've done it, but a lot of the priorities for renewable energy, for efficiency, um, have come forward, uh, for resiliency, for, um, you know, communities that would be most impacted by climate change. A lot of these things are coming forward. So there's, uh, funded state programs that will be moving forward because of our uh, federal government. Um, even though our state um, uh, legislators are choosing not to take action or choosing to uh, not support bills that would help us take our head out of the sand and open our eyes and address the concerns in front of us, um, even though that's their choice, uh, our state is still doing things because of the federal uh, programs that are available. So uh, your environmental council has been engaged on that and uh, really pleased about that. This is In Nature. This is Juliana Daly with In Nature. Today, I am talking to you about the Eastern hemlock. When we hear the word hemlock, we automatically think of poison hemlock. Eastern hemlock is not toxic to humans and makes a delicious vitamin C rich tea. It is also the official state tree of Pennsylvania. It is a coniferous tree in the pine family native to Eastern North America, but it is found in Indiana and much of the Great Lakes region. It is a slow-growing, long-lived tree, which, unlike many trees, grows well in shade. It may take 250 to 300 years to reach maturity and may live for 800 years or more. There is a state watch for the eastern hemlock because they are being infested with the dreaded hemlock woolly adelgid, a xylem-sucking invasive insect native to Asia. It is spread by wind, birds, animals, and humans. The eastern hemlock requires moist, acidic soil with good drainage. It can be grown in full sun or shade, and it grows well in rocky areas where there is a great deal of organic matter. The bark is used as medicine, and people use it for digestive disorders, diarrhea, scurvy, and sore throats. The woolly adelgid is more prevalent in warmer climates, but as the planet warms due to climate change, the pest is moving north. The best way to fight the disease, unfortunately, is through chemical pesticide treatments. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. For Eco Report, I am Juliana Daly. And this is Frank Marshalek. 
Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Learn how to identify trees in the winter during the Buds and Bark Winter Tree ID hike at Alcott Park in Bloomington on Saturday, February 17th from 2 to 4 p.m. You will be outside taking a close look at bark, branches, and buds to seek out the tree identification. Dress for the weather. The Brown County State Park Winter Hike Series continues with a 10 o'clock line nature preserve hike on Saturday, February the 17th from 10 a.m. to noon. This is a 2.5 mile moderate hike along a fire trail and horse trail. The 10 o'clock line nature preserve is the largest nature preserve in the state and has a very unique story. Please dress for the weather. The Whooper Wednesdays will continue at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area until February 21st. Come to the Visitor Center on Wednesday, February 21st at 9 a.m. to walk the property and see if you can spot some of the resident birds, including the endangered whooping, whooping crane. Make sure to dress for the weather. A maple syrup made easy workshop is scheduled for Saturday, February the 24th from noon to 1.30 p.m. at the RCA Community Park in Bloomington. This hands-on workshop will discuss tree identification, equipment, collection, and sugaring techniques. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. The Winter Hike Series at Brown County State Park continues with the CCC runs and the Deserters Cave Hike on Saturday, February 24th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. This is a 1.5-mile round-trip hike that will take you to the Civilian Conservation Course area. Then you will hike to the Deserters Cave, which is a very rugged section of off-trail hiking. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Cynthia Roberts. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Cade Young. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by the Eco Report team. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade, Cade Young and Noelle Hare Husky Schneider produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallek. And this is Eco Report. Thank you so much for listening.
You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.